We're going to begin the study of Jude. So I want to introduce the book of Jude today. And uh, Jude is the last book in the Bible before Revelation. And that doesn't give it any less or more prominence. It's just easier to find that way because if you turn to Revelation and one book back, you find the book of Jude. <laughs> it's just where it is in the New Testament. It's a short book, only one chapter, but it's packed, packed full of stuff for us to learn about. Why do I think that this is the next book for us to study? Well, because I believe that Jude has a message for us today very similar to what Second Peter was talking to us about. I believe those books go hand in hand in many ways. When we look at Jude, we're going to find out that his original intent was to write to the church or write to the people of his day about the goodness of God's salvation. But God changed his plan. God said, rather than just preach and teach and write about that, he said, I feel the Lord leading him to write about the dangers of false prophets and the dangers of false teachers that were infiltrating the church in the early days. And I believe that is the message for today as well. I think that we are truly fighting the untruths of the world. And I think the church needs to stand up and say what's true and not apologize for it. We don't need to apologize for the truth of God's word. Amen? Amen. Now we speak it in love because that's what God intends, all things to be done in love, but we speak truth nonetheless. So looking at the time, this was written in about A.D. 70 or A.D. 80 in that 10-year time frame. Jude was written then. Second Peter, which we just studied previously, was written in A.D. 66 or A.D. 67. So they were written about the same time. Second Peter was written just a little bit before Jude. And no doubt Jude was well aware of Peter. Uh, Peter was one of the original 12 disciples. Jude was not one of the original 12. Yet Jude was a follower of Christ, and we're going to find out some really interesting things about Jude as we continue on. What I like about the way the apostles dealt with contemporaries of their day is that I never find in God's word that they ever competed. They were always building upon each other's messages. Did you, do, you have, do you ever read that? Do you ever see that in your scripture? We're going to find here that Jude actually quotes a passage or two of Second Peter. But they never go into a competitive world to say, I don't want you to think too much of Peter because I want you to think more of me. I think we need more of that in the church today. <laughs> I think we have too much competition amongst the churches today. We need to have more of building each other up and praying for each other and building the ministry that each other has. And I pray that we can do a better job of that ourselves. So when I look at the outline of, of Jude, I see that it is the fourth shortest book in the New Testament, only to Philemon and 2nd and 3rd John. Those three are shorter than Jude it's only one chapter, yet we're going to find it's very, very powerful. The theme of this book is to encourage the readers to contend and fight for the faith. That's what the theme of Jude is about. And basically, that's common to all of the New Testament writings, actually, that they're all, they all deal in some fashion or another 
with how the people of their day are to fight for the truth of God's word. Because the spirit of Antichrist was just as live then as it is today. The Antichrist isn't just the man that comes after the rapture, which he will be the man after the rapture, but at that point it will be the manifestation in physical form of the replacement Christ. All right? But the word Antichrist is replacement Christ has been a part of the spirit of Antichrist has been fully alive through the whole writings of the New Testament. So it's a very common theme. The enemy began long ago twisting and contorting and distorting everything about God's word so that it would diminish the power of God's word and strengthen the deception that he would bring because his goal is to destroy us. As much as God loves you and I, and we know how much that is, right? As much as God loves us, I want you to know how much the enemy hates us. He hates you. He is not your friend. He may come to you with a friendly little jab every once in a while, or come on, let's go play some games. Let's go play the church game, or let's go play the worldly games, and we'll be good buds, and when you get to hell, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a special spot. And, and I know we, we people have talked about that. They've joked about that. But let me just tell you, there is no joking about the enemy. He is evil, and he hates you, and he only wants to destroy you no matter what you think. He only is out to destroy. And the fact remains even more so that we're 2,000 years later than this writing of Jude, and the enemy has had 2,000 years to practice his deception, and he's getting better and better at it every day. He wasn't, he's not perfect. God is perfect. God can't get better than perfection. You can't improve perfection, right? So God is perfect. But the enemy is not. He never was. He never will be. So he is constantly learning. And he's learning on people how to deceive better and better. That's why the tactics today are so much better than they were then. Because you've got to recognize the tactics of deception today are very subtle. Very subtle, but yet very powerful. I never thought I would see the day that I couldn't trust people, especially my leaders. But the enemy has slowly worked his strategy into the minds of our leaders to say that they have an agenda that is not my best in my best interest. And I've and we've been slowly sucker punched, if you will. And that's just the deception of the enemy. That's why the things that we're standing against today, they're spiritual battles. We, we don't get angry and we don't hate people. We love people. But the battles that we face today are spiritual in nature. And we need to recognize that and pray that way and then get ready to defend ourselves that way. So the enemy knows that his time is short. He knows that Jesus is coming back soon. He has no idea when he's coming back. He just knows that it's coming back soon. And he's ramping up his strategies more and more against us. And we know that. So what is Jude talking about? What is the purpose of his message? As I said, that Jude wanted to write a salvation message. And you know what? I think that's attempting for all of us today because we always want to speak the messages that people like to hear. <laughs> I mean, we like people to smile back at us when we're talking. Rip, you've been a pastor. You know what it's like. 
when you give a message that people don't smile at you? It's not, those aren't as much fun, are they? We like messages that people say, yeah, good job, Pastor Mike. That's what I wanted to hear today. Yeah, good job. I'm rah, rah. And that's kind of maybe what Peter, or not Peter, Jude, maybe that's what Peter or Jude was going with. And I'm sure he could have said a lot of positive things about salvation. There's a lot of awesome things to talk about God's mercy and grace. But God interrupted him there, and he said, no, Jude, I know that's where you wanted to go, but I want you to talk about things that I want you to talk about that are more pressing right now. And the pressing things is that there are false teachers and there are false prophets, and I want you to write to the people what I think about that. That's God speaking. And God speaks to them about punishment. And we're going to, if you read, I'm sure you can read through the, the book of Jude very quickly. Get ahead of me here if you want to. But we're going to find out that God deals strongly with imposters. And we need to know that today. Not to say that we're an imposter, but we need to know how God deals with false teachers. And we're going to get into that as we get into this study. So Jude is writing some, some harder truths that we need to hear, listen to, and apply as applicable in our lives. So he's writing this letter for two major purposes. Number one, he's writing to warn believers about the serious threat of false teachers that are already impacting the local church of the day. Like Peter, Jude was prompted by the Holy Spirit to warn the people of the subtle ways in the way these false teachers were worming their way into the church. People that were in the church, that had maybe a ministry in the church, but yet somehow the enemy has got into them and convinced them maybe that they should speak a different compromised message. And that's very dangerous. So we have to understand that Jude is writing to the church, not to the world. He's writing to the believers, and he's warning the believers, and he's giving God's directions about how to deal with things like this. Secondly, he's challenging the true believers of Jesus to rise up and fight against these false teachers and to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to them. In other words, this is not a new message. This is not a new teaching, and this isn't talking about the latest Christian fads on how to build a church. No, he's not talking about that. Rather, he's getting back to the basics of learning what it's about to stand up for the truth, to discern truth from evil, and to stand up to it, and then have the, and, and then have the fortitude to fight for it. Fight for what's right. This is not the popular word. I get it. But I pray that you sense love in the presentation of it because that's the most important element of it is love in the face of truth. Love as truth is given. I pray that that's the way it's given and received. Maybe that's why Jude wanted to write more of a feel-good message <laughs> and, uh, and a more, but, but God says, no, I've got a, a, a more important message. So get ready as we go through this study to hear how God deals with imposters. And in some ways, you know, if we take a look at today's vernacular, in, in the political world, in today's vernacular, those that, Jude would be talking about those that some would call 
profess to be representatives of the Republican Party, and I just use Republican because it stands for um, the, the beliefs that we believe in for the most part. But you know, you've heard the term rhino, right? Republican in name only. For those Republicans that will say they are, but then will compromise a lot of the fundamentals. Well, I think Jude is saying that there are some binos as well. And binos would be believers in name only. <laughs> and we have to be more than that. We have to be true believers and really putting our faith into action. And so that's what we're talking about today and um, over the next couple of weeks is we're going to talk about that. So as always, whenever we study a book of the Bible, it's important to gain as much information on the author. Who's the author? What's the context of the book? So that we can understand better what he was trying to say in the moment of his day, in his context. And so we're going to spend today basically introducing Jude, is who is Jude, right? The Jude 1, it says, the first part of Jude 1 says, again, this letter is from Jude, and he introduces himself as a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. Okay, there's a lot in that little introduction Jude introduces himself as a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. So what does this mean? James that he's talking about, is, or uh, Judas here, is not Judas Iscariot. We know Judas Iscariot. He was the one that betrayed Jesus. He was part of the 12 disciples. There was also a Judas, son of James, also named as one of the 12 disciples. And this is not that Judas either. Yet, he was a follower of Christ and a strong follower of Christ, as we're going to find out later, because he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ, a, a, a bond servant. And we're going to come back to that later, but I first want to talk about who he is as regards to the brother of James. So, who is James? Who is James that he's referring to? Well, this is the same James that wrote the book of James. And James was identified as a half-brother of Jesus. So James was a, was a brother of Christ. Mary and Joseph had other children after Jesus was born. Mary and Joseph had other naturally born children. So James was one of them. He's a half-brother of Christ. Shares the same mother, but not the same father. All right, and uh, we learn this from the Gospel of Mark. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 5. It says that Jesus left the area where he was at and went to his hometown, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he's performing? And then they ask the question, verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James? Here we go. The brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? And aren't his sisters with us as well? And they took offense at him. So here we have it that James is the son of Mary and Joseph. And we also see Judas being named here as a brother of Jesus as well, and a brother of James. So Jude is a shortened version of Judas, like Sam is a shortened version of Samuel. James 
and Jude were brothers. And they were both brothers of Christ. And I find it very interesting and truly humbling, actually, that Jude and James are very careful never to make that claim of themselves. You'll never see James saying, I'm a brother of Jesus. You'll never see Jude playing the Jesus card either. Why? Why does he introduce himself as a brother of James and not as a brother of Jesus? Well, James was already an established church leader and was already re well-respected in, in the community of believers. James had already written his book back around A.D. 45 to 49. So he had already written the book to, of James. Jude wrote his letter around A.D. 70 or A.D. 80. So 25 to 30 years later was the book of Jude written. So for Jude to say that he was the brother of James gives him credibility in the church world because James was already a credible uh, believer and a leader and an apostle. Neither one, James nor Jude, were the original 12. Just so you know that neither one of them were called by Jesus to be part of the original 12 disciples. So neither James, another thing, that neither James nor Jude, really important here, neither one of them acknowledged Jesus as the Son of God while Jesus was alive. And I think it's important that we recognize this because they didn't believe in who he was. And I say that they didn't acknowledge them because I think that in all reality, when you think about them, when you think about James and Jude growing up as a brother of Jesus, that's pretty interesting. Because Jesus was the oldest brother. And I'm not sure if James or Jude were older. Probably James was older because he was listed first. doesn't say, but I'm assuming James was the old, older than Jude. But I got to imagine that they had some serious questions growing up. Who is this kid? But yet they never could acknowledge him as being really any different than themselves because that's all they, that's all they knew. He was just the big brother. And even if they believed that he was the son of God when he was 15, 16, 18 years old, we don't know. But how would that have made them look going to school and saying, hey, my brother's the son of God. <laughs> my brother could beat up your brother because he's the son of God. <laughs> I, I, they didn't get it. They, they didn't understand it that way. They didn't acknowledge him as who he was. Though they were very familiar with him, and this is going to be a really important part later, they were very familiar with Jesus, but they didn't acknowledge him as the Son of God while he was alive. I kind of wonder how that made Jesus feel. Think about it. They came from a relatively large family. Four boys that were listed, and then some sisters that aren't named. So we don't know exactly how many sisters Jesus had, or James, or Jude had. But they weren't upper class. This was a very normal, uh, middle-of-the-road family in Nazareth. Their father, was a their, their father was a carpenter, or a worker of wood and or metal. We're not sure exactly, a carpenter, 
but he also could have been a worker of, of metal. He probably was a local handyman of sorts, a skilled tradesman. Nothing, nothing fancy about Joseph. And probably the boys were learning the trade um, of what their father did. We don't have any record of what happened to Joseph, the father. Uh, the Bible doesn't say anything what happened to him. Probably, scholars believe that he probably died before Jesus ever entered ministry at about 30, that somewhere in time, Joseph probably passed away because there's no, never any record that Jesus ever referring to his father. Um, you would have thought that if Jesus would have been in his ministry, if his father was sick, he would have healed his father. <laughs> But we probably, Joseph probably passed away. And you've got to recognize that Joseph was older than Mary anyways. Because you go back to the betrothal of them, Mary was a teenager, and Joseph was an older man. We don't know how old he was, but he probably could have been 10, 12, 15, 20 years older. We don't know of Mary. So Mary, Joseph passed away before Jesus ever entered his ministry. But the family still had problems with Jesus. And I think it's important that we recognize that there were some family issues. This was kind of a dysfunctional family. And uh, let's read in the Gospels where the family struggled with who this Jesus guy was. J John chapter 7, the first five verses. John chapter 7, beginning at verse 1. It says, After this, Jesus traveled around Galilee. He wanted to stay out of Judea, where the Jewish leaders were plotting his death. But soon it was time for the Jewish festival of shelters. And Jesus' brothers, hear this, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea where your followers can see your miracles. You can't become famous if you hide like this. If you can do such wonderful things, show yourself to the world. For even his brothers didn't believe in him. So do you see the sarcasm here? Come on, Jesus, if you, who, if you are who you say you are, then go ahead and show people who you are. Prove yourself. And then in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, another time here where the family embarrassed himself. <laughs> One time Jesus entered a house, and the crowds began to gather again. Soon he and his disciples couldn't even find time to eat. When his family heard about what was happening, they tried to take him away because they said he's out of his mind. So you can see his brothers were a little embarrassed about what Brick Brother was doing here. And maybe even Mary was concerned about this. Matthew records it this way. Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 through 50. While Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mother and brother stood outside wanting to speak to him. Someone told him, your mother and brothers are standing outside wanting to speak to you. But Jesus replied to them, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Now, this sounds a little harsh, doesn't it? For Jesus to say this about his family. But remember Jesus was always aware of his situation around him. He was always aware of the surroundings. He always knew what people were thinking. He always had the motive of why people were there, what they were doing. So Jesus understood why his family was there. 
He understood why his mother and brothers were outside. They weren't out there to glorify him and to help him in his ministry. They were there to take him away. And Jesus understood that, so he had to respond in a way that was appropriate. So I say this because James and Jude, in their later years, were probably still dealing with some lingering family dysfunction issues. Because they had to deal with some things that none of us had to deal with. And they weren't really sure how to handle this son of God who was their brother. Familiarity in family life can sometimes be a major stumbling block to ministry. Just understand that. Remember, one of Satan's number one priorities and strategies is to destroy people. And the family unit is one of his favorite targets. If Satan can destroy a family, beginning with the father and the mother, he has great access to the children. If he could split up a father and a mother, that's why God hates divorce. That's why it says in Malachi, God hates divorce. Now he hates it because that's the enemy's number one strategy to destroy families. God loves people, but he hates what the enemy does to his people. And divorce is a tool of the enemy. And I know that many struggle with this today, and I'm not here to um, be negative to people that have been divorced because, you know, we live in a fallen world, folks. I get it. But let me just tell you that God can, re God can redeem fallen people. Divorce is not the unpardonable sin. So I want you to know that. But families are attacked, and they come under attack, and it normally starts at the top. When you become a Christian, you put a target on your back, just so you know that. No matter where you are in the family line, you put a target on your back because the enemy is out to destroy you. But let me tell you something else, though, that Satan's strategies will always fail. He will never win in the end. He may have some short-term victories, and he may come across like a big roaring lion, but when you look deeply into his mouth, you will see that his teeth are pulled out. He will gum you to death. He makes a big noise, he'll roar a lot, but he's been defeated on the cross, and his strategies will never win, we just have to remember that. We just have to remember who we are in Christ, that we will defeat him. He has been defeated, and as we stand in the truth of God's word, that we are the victors. And Satan may use things to weaken us, but yet we're going to win. Satan might have used a dysfunctional family life of Jesus and James and Jude, yet God uses what Satan intended to hurt them, to defeat them, God turned it around to defeat the enemy because both Jude and James became great writers in the New Testament and they became great leaders of the New Testament church even though they didn't begin so hot. <laughs> even though they didn't begin on such a good note, God turned them around and used them and that gives you and me 
great encouragement because no matter where you're at in life, God can use you and he can use me too, no matter where we started off from. And that's what I like about this story is that these men, they started off as doubters and they ended as great disciples. And they ended in martyrs' deaths for Christ, their brother who became their savior, who then became their Lord. That's what this is all about. So no matter what your past is, God can take it and he can use it for God's glory. It doesn't make any difference. Some of us have said, you know, I live, I've lived such a sinful life that God can't forgive me. Well, that's a lie from the enemy. I'm telling you right now, that's a lie from hell. God will forgive. If you say you're sorry, he will forgive. Not only that, but he will use you mightily and he'll use a testimony of yours. So be encouraged about that. There's some good news there. And here's another reason why I think it's so interesting that about the character of both James and Jude in that they neither one of them wanted to be called or never pulled the Jesus card was that they didn't want their message that the Holy Spirit had inspired them with to be overshadowed by the fact that they were Jesus' brothers because that could have been a popularity thing for them. We all like to around, be around people that are famous, right? Well, they could have said, hey, I'm a brother of Jesus. And that could have made him really famous in their own right. But it would have diminished or would have, they would have lost the message of what the Holy Spirit was really speaking to them through. So they didn't use that. Purposely, they didn't use that. And it's important that we recognize the fact that their standing was not because of who they were with Jesus physically. It's their standing was who they were with Jesus spiritually. Did you hear what I said? It wasn't because they were brothers of Jesus physically. It's because they were, they were bondservants to Jesus spiritually. And that's what we need to know. That's what we need to be. We need to understand that it, it's not just about knowing about Jesus that makes us, gives us our salvation. We can be very educated, and we can have all the Bible knowledge about who God is, but that means nothing to your spiritual life until you turn it into a spiritual relationship. A Bible commentary says it this way about Jude and James. Jude and his brother, James, also teach that familiarity with Jesus is not sufficient to save them or to save us. They lived in the same household with the Son of God for years, but they did not believe in him. They knew about him, but they, didn't, they did not know him. Did you hear that? They believed in him, or they knew about him, but they did not know him. Interesting. The same is true for many professing Christians today. Cultural Christianity places people in proximity to the truth, but many have not allowed that truth to redefine their lives. Wow, that's really important, isn't it? There were no shortcuts for Jude, James, or Mary. Mary is not the mother of heaven. She is not God's mother. She is a woman highly esteemed by God, for sure. But she needed to come to her own salvation in Jesus, just like you do, and just like I do. Just because she could say, I was Jesus' mother, will not get her into heaven. What gets her into heaven is a relationship with Jesus through the blood of Christ, through his sacrifice. 
John chapter 14, 6 and 7 says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father. They, the whole family of Jesus, natural family, they all needed to be saved by the same grace and the same mercy of Jesus Christ like you and I need to be saved by. They are not favorites. Ephesians chapter 2, 8 and 9, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Do you imagine how much James and Jude could have boasted on their, on their faith if they would have said, I'm the brother of Jesus? <laughs> Yet, how many times do we find ourselves? How many times, I mean, is it easy to get our ego so cranked out of shape because, oh, I'm a great preacher, or I'm a great singer, or I have a great ministry over this or that, and means nothing it means nothing what means all that means anything of significance is your relationship with jesus so then jude calls himself the second way he introduces himself well the first way he said i'm a slave of jesus and a brother of james what does it mean to be a slave of jesus christ and what would that look like see in the day Slavery was, it, it existed. It doesn't exist today. But in the day, slavery was, it, it was a, there was a, a slavery issue. There was a class of people that were slaves and, and not slaves. But there's a difference between being a slave and being a bond servant. A slave means you don't have a choice, that you're captured by the enemy and you've become their slave. A bond servant is one that started out as a slave and if the slave owner gave them a, a, a bride while they were slaves, then the slave owner basically owns the bride and the children. If you came into being a slave as a already married, then the slave owner doesn't own your wife but he owns your children. So now to be a bond servant means this. You may have come, you may fall in good regard with your slave owner and your slave owner may say, I'm going to free you and I'm going to give you freedom. But if I gave you a wife, your wife and children have to stay with me. But I'm going to set you free. And a bond servant says this. No, I love you, my master, and I love my wife and my children so much that I don't want to be free. I want to stay a slave. Exodus chapter 21, verse 5 and 6. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children and do not want to go free, then this master must take him before the judges and he shall, and he shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be a servant for life. So when James and Jude call themselves and the other, other, other apostles call themselves a, a bondservant of Christ, this is what this means. That they are giving up their freedom because they love Jesus so much that they are going to be a servant of Christ forever. That's the kind of commitment that Jude was reflecting here when he said, I'm a servant of Christ and a brother of James. I willingly give up my freedom to live the way I want to live, to be a servant of Jesus forever. And that's the kind of commitment that we need to have. 
It's a 100% commitment to Christ. And they, the disciples, they became great examples for us. You see, the power of choice here comes in again. One more time. The power of choice is so powerful that it trumps anything else that God would do when I choose not to receive it. Because if, if I don't have the choice to receive it, then I don't have the choice to acknowledge who God is to me, that I'm a robot. God didn't make us robots. He gave us the power of choice. So for me to say, God, I'm a bondservant, I'm giving up my choices now, and I'm going to serve you forever out of my free will, that proves my love. And that proves my commitment and dedication. And that's what Jude is saying here. And that's the example we have are to follow. The closer we get to the end times, the more temptation we're going to have to give up our servanthood to Christ. It's going to be harder and harder to live for Christ the closer we get to the end times. Understand this. You need to be aware of this. Because it's going to take a commitment of ours to stand for Christ and to fight and to contend for the faith. That's our relationship with Jesus that matters. And that relationship begins with the blood of Jesus. And then it grows in us as we freely give ourselves over to be a bondservant of Christ. Jackie, would you come, please? And I want you to know, like we said last week, that this sounds like a very hard thing to do. I'm telling you, I've just said, it's, we're going to have more temptation to give in and to give up. But I want you to know, though, that it's not hard if we truly are given in to Christ. If we're truly committed to Christ, then what we're talking about here, this is a proof statement for us to show the world that we're committed to Christ. And when I know that I have freedom in that commitment, and when I know that that is where my true joy comes from, it's not hard to live for Jesus. The devil will make it very difficult, and the world might make it difficult, but it's not difficult. It's really just a proof statement. Peter, or Paul said this to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 15 and 16. Paul says, Be diligent in these matters, Timothy. Give yourself wholly to them or surrender to them completely so that everyone may see your progress. Remember, these are proof statements. You're proving yourself through your commitment, Timothy. Watch your life and watch your doctrine closely. Persevere in them because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. I want us to know that living for Jesus is the most important thing we can do, and it's not hard. We make it too hard. The world makes it too hard. When I say I'm a follower of Christ, I prove it through my actions. I may have to die to myself, yes. I may have to sacrifice some things. I may need to, like we said earlier in our worship service, I may need to put my feelings down and break through some barriers in my life but it's for your, my benefit and for your benefit. So church, let me encourage us this morning to commit to hearing what the Lord is saying 
and doing everything we can to be pleasing in His sight. Does that make sense? Amen. God, I, I just, I just want to be pleasing to the Lord. I, I don't want to fear people. I, I don't want to fear men. I don't want to fear what they think of me. I just want the Lord to look down and say, yeah, you're my son, you're my daughter. I'm well pleased in you. That's what I want this church to be. That's what I want me to be. That's what I want you to be. Let's pray. Father, we just come to you in Jesus' name. And, and Lord, we are just so thankful that we have the opportunity to be called a son and a daughter. Lord, we may not know you physically yet. We will soon. We will look physically upon your face and we will see you with our physical eyes and a spiritual body. But Lord, right now we see you high and lifted up. And we just want to lay our life at your altar. And we just want to bow down before you and say, yes, I willingly turn my life over to you. I'm a bondservant of you. I want to just lay my life before you and say, I'm all yours. And when I say that, it makes life so much more fulfilling. Then I don't have to play the games. I don't have to play the hypocritical games. I just say, yes, 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 I'm all in for Jesus. I pray, Father, that that would be our heart's prayer today. And I ask you, Holy Spirit, to fill us with your power and your authority. Teach us what it means to be that kind of a person. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Jackie and Tom, would lead us in a song of, of worship. And God, stand with me, if you will. And let's just worship the Lord for a few minutes here as we, before we leave today. Here is where I lay down Every burden, every crown This is my surrender This is my surrender
Father, that is our surrender today. We come before you and we lay it down before your cross. And Lord, help us not to pick it up again and take it home with us. Help us to leave it here today. And that we would walk out with victory today. Walk out knowing that we have proof statements to make. That we are followers of Christ. And that we are victors in Jesus Christ. And we, as we go to our homes and our places of business this week, that people look at us as a little bit differently today because of who you are in our hearts and our lives today. And I pray that you would see that and be smiling upon us. And I pray your blessing on your people today. That you would encourage us all and strengthen us and let us know that we're loved of God and that we have a great future in store no matter what's happening around us. We love you and we commit our hearts to you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Be blessed today. Have a great day in Jesus. Amen. All right, come back on Wednesday, please. Bring your friends. And let's learn and let's be educated on how we can survive this craziness that we're in.